Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that's just about ready for a financial takeover of its own. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Hitme Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And what you alluded to there is probably a good place to start this week, which is the news that Everton uh, are potentially soon to be bought out by a new conglomerate, 777 Partners. Indeed, uh, you know, Everton not quite yet bought. An agreement has been reached, but it's subject to an approvals process uh, that has to be assessed by the Premier League, uh, the Football Association and the Financial Conduct Authority. It should also supposedly be subject to the more stringent uh, fit and proper owners test uh, that we've been told is going to happen. Of course, mm. in recent years and recent decades, it's been uh, about as, as much use or, or about as uh, as sort of stringent as having a, uh, you know, a, a little sort of string holding people back instead of a velvet rope. Uh, I don't know if that's a good analogy, but... Um, yeah, oh, th- this will potentially be the sort of most stern test of this fit and proper owners test because there is some controversy surrounding 777 partners. Um, there is There are some allegations that the owners sort of or sort of the, rather that the um, the uh, runners of 777 Partners refute. And and also there are some reasons for Everton fans to be happy. There are some reasons for Everton fans to potentially be pretty angry. Um, and it, it represents quite an interesting uh, opportunity, but also challenge for the club. 777 Partners, one of the big notable things about them is that they are not dissimilar to someone like a City Football Group, uh, owners and sort of investors into this multi-club model. Uh, so the mm-hmm. 777 Football Group currently comprises Genoa in Italy, uh, Vasco da Gama in Brazil, Hertha Berlin in uh, Germany, Standard Liège in Belgium, Red Star FC in France, Sevilla in Spain, and Melbourne Victory in Australia. So you look at that and you might go, wow, okay, well, we've seen uh, how this model is often done by, you know, City Football Group being the very obvious example, but also you look at something like, uh, for example... Uh, you know, Chelsea just buying Strasbourg uh, or Udinese and Watford. Uh, and I think at some point Hatafe as well, potentially. Although I might be wrong about that third club there, but that club has now been sold. And it's, uh, it it's potentially it's quite attractive a on Spanish paper. Spanish club that they had. I think it was Hatafe, yeah. Yeah, it's quite attractive on paper. Or even um, Bournemouth and Lorient. And they just got um, Bournemouth when they were bought by Lorient's owner. Um, they sort of, Bill Foley, they picked up Dango Watara, who was sort of Lorient's best player. So when you're sort of, especially as a Premier League club, when you are certainly financially and, and, and probably as a result of that, um, you know, attention-wise, top of the tree for the, the owners, it's sort of quite an interesting prospect because the obvious thought there is, oh, we're going to get to sort of suck up all the talent from across all these leagues and get, you know, preferential rates and essentially sort of load of feeder clubs, you know, f- feeding into us um, can be the thought. Might not be the case for Everton. I mean, it might be the case, but there's a few things to note with some of these clubs that, that the 77 partners have picked up and, and maybe how it will reflect into their ownership of Everton. Um, for example, Genoa, who are Italy's uh, oldest professional club, don't know if you know that, um, not. have been relegated since uh, 77 partners takeover. They bought them two years ago and they've been relegated. They have since been re-promoted, but it's not uh, an auspicious start to their ownership. They've also been Dr. Point uh, for failing to pay relevant taxes in September and October 2022. Now, 777 Partners, uh, I'm going to say that wrong at some point, maybe I have already. (laughs) 777 Partners have maintained that this was due to an administrative error, um, but it's easy to imagine how that has already got Everton fans who are used to years of uncertainty. Uh, It's got them sweating a little bit. Hertha Berlin are another example. They have not been happy, their fans, at all with the ownership from 777. Uh, and in fact, the Ultras unveiled a banner uh, at the end of last season after the club finished absolutely dead last in the Bundesliga and went down themselves. So two examples there of not particularly uh, exciting ownership. There's also a quote that's been going around uh, from the uh, from one of the sort of uh, key runners, owners, uh, sort of the new prospective owner of Everton, but one of the sort of key figures in 777 Partners, um, where he said, and this is the quote I'll sort of read out, it goes, we have a strong view that there's a new wave of commercialization coming to football. Um, this vision for the football group is that one day we're not selling hot dogs and beers to our customers, it's that we're selling insurance or financial services or whatever. These intensity, hmm. The intensity of fans engagement with their clubs mean they want to be monetized. 
Now, <laughs> it's not exactly the view, it's not exactly the kind of thing you want to hear from your new prospective owner, is it? That um, you know, uh, oh, don't worry, Everton fans. You know, you're not going to be getting sold hot dogs and beers any longer. Soon, you're going to get car insurance and home insurance and life insurance. Well, you know, they've not said anything about we're going to bring this great, you know, traditional, you know, massively supported club back to its peak. They've gone, hey, we can maybe sell the fans some insurance. It's not, it's not, not a great sign. It's so funny because like. <laughs> I just love the idea that like fans want to be monetized. I know this. <laughs> um, it's it's a very uh, it's a very and I you know I say this based on all the evidence we have in front of us so far. Quite American football owner view of football. Yeah, very much so. I'm not and, saying American view. I'm saying American team owner view. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, well, um, speaking of American uh, owners, this p- potential um, sale would take. American ownership of Premier Clubs to 50%, um, which is, mm. um, you know, no small thing uh, and something which I'm sure a lot of people across English football will be groaning at um, because, again, uh, American owners have not necessarily always endeared themselves to their fans. You're absolutely right about, um, you know, some of uh, 777 partners' uh, behaviour with other clubs. But um, that's that's how I should say it. Seven hundred and seventy-seven. I'm going seven, seven, seven. That's that's how I've decided to say it from now on. Always, yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, the 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 person that owns the club now, um, Farhad Mashiri, has obviously not had a particularly good tenure. He took over in 2016, and they've gone pretty much steadily downhill since then. So he didn't take over in, in 2016. He became a shareholder in 2016, and the majority in 2018. Um, and since then, um, as we have seen. Their football has declined. They've dropped down to the the bottom half of the bottom half of the table, threatened with relegation a few times. And in in the meanwhile, racking up significant debt um, and are going to be appearing in October before an independent commission over an alleged breach of financial fair play rules. So you're absolutely right there that, you know, Everton fans will probably be um, nervous because it might well be more of the same. But at the same time, I can't imagine that many people are thinking that it's going to be significantly worse than what they have now. Uh, if I was an Everton fan, uh, I would definitely be uh, voting for change, um, even if that change came with risks. 100%. And I, and I think the <laughs> the sort of situation that Everton and Everton fans find themselves in can be succinctly described in two aphorisms. Uh, one, any port in a storm, uh, but two, out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, uh, I mean, we just don't know, do we? Um, it, it might not even pass the um, the more rigorous tests, which I'm very excited to uh, to see um, take place. I think um, I'm not the only person that's been thinking that for a while, probably the Premier League should update its um, its tests for um, who can and cannot become owners of clubs, and it could well be that that they fail. Um, it is interesting to see this rising trend of um, you know many clubs under one banner um but i mean i think from what it seems to to me in the early days it was a massive wild west um you know i think um chelsea and vitesse obviously had an informal partnership um that's one you mentioned earlier of um udinese and watford and um getafe i think they were um quite often swapping players between them um we've obviously seen players swap between the different Red Bull clubs as well. But I, I do think that's starting to shift. You see that happen less now. Um, and I think that for a, a partnership like 7, 7, 777 Partners, um, I think that Everton are not going to be lucrative enough ever, really, or, or at any point in the near future, to be funneling the investments of like eight different clubs into it, all into it. Um, you know, I don't think the financials are there in the Premier League to do that. Um, you know, sometimes clubs can win the whole thing and still end up with, with a net loss. Um, and I feel like we might see a little bit of it, but we probably won't see a lot. Um, I don't know. What, what's, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's quite exciting because you look at, you know, some, some of the clubs you look at, you know, the Red Bull clubs, for example, Leipzig are, I mean, firstly, Leipzig have been relatively successful. Um, but you look at the, the leagues that Leipzig are potentially drawing from, and you've got Red Bull Salzburg uh, in the Austrian Bundesliga, you've got New York Red Bulls, obviously, in the MLS. 
decent leagues, but not the strongest leagues. Compare that to, for example, I mean, we talked about Genoa in Italy, Hertha Berlin in uh, Germany, not in the Bundesliga at the moment, of course, as mentioned, and also Standard Liège uh, in Belgium. Well, also severe in Spain, although 777 partners are minority owners. They only have a 7.5% stake, I think. Yeah, but but standardly Asian Belgium as well, where we've seen, I mean, Everton fans will fondly remember one Belgian player who, who began his time at Anderlecht and had a, a grand old time at Everton and, and perhaps no no greater greater time since. And I'm not talking about Kevin Morales, I'm talking about uh, Romelu Lukaku, although uh, you could say either of those players. I actually um, was thinking about Kevin Morales. <laughs> there, there you go. go, there you go, great minds. Um so I think there's that. I think there's that. Um, I think also, additionally, one of the big uh, questions around Everton fans' minds, and I think this will continue even with the new ownership, is the big prospect of this new stadium being built down at Bramley Moor Dock um, and whether Farhad Mashiri had the capital to complete it. Um, 777 Partners have already, even prior to owning the club, have uh, started investing in it through the form of a loan. Uh, they're actually not allowed to inject any equity into the uh, club up to and until the point that they actually formally take over. So they've loaned the money, although if they take over, you'd imagine they uh, either write off that loan or uh, insist that's very generous repayment terms. Um, so so the fact that, you know, they're, they're throwing money in and they're trying to, to, to better the club in that sense, certainly. There is also the question that with the stadium, and this is a sort of much more macro question that sort of goes over the period of years, but if Everton go down... Is that the kind of financial millstone they want around their neck? Certainly, we've seen you know you know big big clubs who are at no risk of going down, like Arsenal and Tottenham, for example, really struggle for a while after they've uh, built a new stadium and maybe not hit the heights. Uh, and so, if that's the case for them, how will Everton feel when they're not not at their most healthy, even when they haven't got that to contend with? Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, there's, it's easy to look at a lot of the examples of how they've done with the club so far and go, this is a bad sign for Everton fans. Equally, though, they may well take a different kilt to a club like Everton because there's so much fun, so much more financial upside if you get it exactly right. And because there's so much more, you know, that Everton is a, despite all the uh, sort of banter they get from the other side of Liverpool, they are still like a, a world famous club. They're, they're one of the most supported clubs worldwide, um, which is maybe not so true as some of the other clubs in, in that sort of Koretsu that 777 partners have, have established. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you mentioned there that they're from uh, impressive countries in that, you know, France and Italy and, and Germany and places like that. But um, a lot of the clubs, as you've already mentioned a couple, are not in the top tiers of those countries at the moment. Um, Red Star, I think, is in third tier. Um, Hertha Berlin's been relegated. Genoa has been relegated. Um well, Genoa are back up now, but they they got they went down and went back up. Sure, that that's true. Um, but they they might not, you know, they might not stay up. Um, and I think that mm. they're not established entities in the top flight of any of their clubs, of any of their countries is probably the the better way to put it. Um, so Everton yeah, are definitely going to become the flagship of their franchise, whether or not you know they're able to continue. To expand their their grip on Sevilla, um, and and at some point become majority shareholders would probably I would say put Sevilla at the top of 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 that um, that list of clubs. But for now, it is Everton. Although, as you mentioned earlier, it would if it wasn't for the fact that they were sort of minority owners there. No, but if, if they continue to invest and get more shares, and then. Potentially, although, and this is just a gut feeling, I feel like now they've got a majority shareholder of a Premier League club, you probably would go all all in on that. I could be completely wrong, and they could turn around and go, now with this leverage we want to do a full buyout of Sevilla, but I feel like you would probably just stick with the Premier League club as your flagship, but hey, who knows. Probably, probably, and Everton also, not just a a Premier League club, but a Premier League club with a a really rich, deep history, um, long and storied. Well, they're 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 still the uh, the longest running. I think they've been in the top flight for 120 straight seasons, mm-hmm. um, which is longer than anyone else. So, the only club, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for a lot of younger fans, even fans of sort of your and I age, because um, you're in my age rather. Um, you know, it, it could be easy to think, oh, Everton. You know, they're not that because Everton. The last time they won a trophy was 28 years ago. Um, 
So for a lot of younger, modern, I say younger fans, if you're 30, <laughs> you, know, you haven't seen Everton be successful when you're a, when you're a cognizant being. Um, so it's easy to think that. But Everton, you know, they still have a real, real pedigree. And they're, they're up there, I think, in the top four of most uh, English titles ever won. And have certainly sort of, uh, they've scored the most goals in the English top flight. Um, and I think that's still true. I think they haven't yet been overtaken by Liverpool. But yeah, they, they've got an unbelievable pedigree. And I think the fans have been sort of waiting for someone to... To, to take them back to even a fraction of, of, of that that pedigree, um, which maybe maybe why it's not so good to hear someone talking about selling them insurance. The big deal about the takeover. <laughs> yeah, um, it's well. Look, I think um, personally, I'm interested to see what happens. I don't hate the move. Um, not thrilled by the fact that they've obviously been responsible for a couple of bad turns um, amongst their other clubs, but. You know, uh, owners can only do so much um, to to an extent, and Everton have been crying out for for change for at least two or three years now. Um, and I think that uh, if we do get a a confirmed sale, we, and we when we do get a an Everton fan on to talk about it, I'm sure they would say that it's been uh, more than one or two years in the in the making that they wanted um, a change of ownership. So. I personally am not fully against it. I'm interested to see. Yeah, I yeah, I think that's about it for me. Yeah, it, look, it remains to be seen if this takeover will even be sent through by the new test, uh, and as and when it goes through, we can uh, definitely elaborate a bit more. But yeah, an interesting uh, an interesting example for a lot of reasons because a lot of clubs are always clamouring for new ownership, but sometimes it's better the devil you know than the one you don't. True words, rarely said. Let's look next at uh, the Champions League because at time of recording, it's a Tuesday. The Champions League, back, Champions League uh, group stage is proper. Of course, the actual Champions League, I think the qualifying stages began like three months ago. Um, the Champions League proper has begun tonight. Uh, we have already seen a scrappy, mm. I would call it, nil-nil between Milan and Newcastle and uh, Leipzig winning away at Young Boys. Uh, looking forward to the rest of tonight, we've got PSG against Dortmund, uh, which will probably be a, a nice little scrap. Um, Man City <laughs> versus Red Star, probably less so, and Barcelona and Antwerp, much the same. Uh, Atletico Madrid versus Lazio, uh, eh, I think that far that one under, that's going to be a really aggressive game. But the main thing is, the Champions League's back, and it's a great year for it because we've got loads of interesting teams. So I already mentioned that Newcastle are in the Champions League this season. They are in a hilariously difficult group with PSG and Dortmund making up the other two teams in that group. Um, we're also seeing the return of Arsenal for the first time in six years. Um, they're mm-hmm. playing PSG, uh, PSV sorry, tomorrow. Um, and Bayern Munich are going to be hosting a, a very sketchy Manchester United uh, tomorrow. And it's one of those games I, I feel like Manchester United <laughs> have these all the time. I wouldn't be surprised if they have a really good game and that sort of allays a lot of the fears for fans for a while and they go back, they immediately go and lose to like, you know, whoever they've not played yet that, that shouldn't be expected to beat them. I was going to say Forrest off the top of my head, but I know they've already played them and just about beat them. Um, it's really funny when you think about it. I, I was talking to a friend today about the fact that Arsenal, for example, are back in the Champions League after six years because you sort of hear that and I don't know about how your brain works, but the way my brain works, like, I sort of heard that all week and I was like, oh, whatever. And then I was like, what was I doing six years ago? And it gave me a real sort of like, oh my God, <laughs> that was so long ago. I know what you mean. Yeah, you, you have, um, yeah, you have a, uh, yeah, your mind cast back and it, it's, it's, it is a long time. It's been a long time. Um, but as you say there, some very exciting games. I'm looking forward to Bayern Man U. I think that'll be a fun game. I could absolutely see what you're saying, which is, um, you know, that them having a really good game, surprisingly. Uh, I'm also quite excited to see... Like a, like a 1-0, Marcus yeah. Rashford. All of a sudden, all the United fans have been criticising him for the last two weeks. are like, Starboy, Starboy, I knew Rashford. Rashford was better than every other player in the world. Vinicius who? Mbappe who? It's like, bro, two weeks ago you tweeted that he should get out of your club and he wouldn't be able to get a game for Tranmere Rovers. <laughs> Do you know what I think would be even more classic is if Man U drew 1-1, but the fans still had that same reaction? Also very also very possible and unlikely, yes. Um, I'm, I'm personally quite excited. Um, like My pick of the uh, opening fixtures, Real Madrid-Union Berlin. I think that's going to be quite a fun game. I'm I'm excited to see 
um, the the German new kids on the block, I guess you could call them, in terms of um, you know entering European competition, take on the Titans. Yeah, and and, and what a you know. What a, uh, a starting berth for Union Berlin, their first time ever in the Champions League. And not only are they in a group with, but their first ever game is away at the sort of Mr. Champions League of football teams, Real Madrid. Um, I mean, you know, their fans are probably like, you know what, win or lose, what a great opportunity to, to sort of play at the Bernabeu. And these are the kind of games you would sort of give your left arm for a few years ago. And imagine if they managed to win. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very welcome to the Champions League. Um, it's like, I feel like it's the European equivalent of like two-footing someone in the first minute of championship football. Um, I mean, Berlin, yeah, they always had a fantastic year last year. Um, they had a good start to this season. They've lost a couple of games in a row, not going in with the best form, but hopefully um, they can they can pull something out of the bag. I'd love to see them um, knock Real Madrid down a peg. That'd be that'd be a good good fun watch. Um, but yeah, oh, good good well, matches well, littering games across all of these groups. Every neutral. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, just sorry to take you back to that. One of those games that every single neutral will be going for Union Berlin. Oh, 100%. Um, and we go, boo, Real Madrid, don't bully them, boo. Let them score, let them equalise, boo. <laughs> um, yeah, German German football, I feel like, has the most hipster choice football clubs of any country. I don't know if that's a hot take or not. I know Italy, you know, someone like Atalanta, you could probably make make the claim for. But I feel like every every couple of years some random club emerges and like has a bit of fun in Europe. I'm thinking like Borussia Mönchengladbach, um, Union Berlin now. Obviously, um, I think the the classic hipster football club for a long time has been um, Borussia Dortmund. Um, I, I don't know. I think um, it was Hanover. Le- Leipzig Hanover a couple as well, of years as you mentioned. Um, I think we had Wolfsburg did quite well for a few yeah, years. Yeah, well, when they had Andre Schürrle and Kevin De Bruyne. <laughs> Mm, yeah, yeah, no, I think you're definitely right there. I think they are sort of. Everyone seems to get a bit of a crack of the whip. Bayern lets other people like Bayern sort of when it comes to summer, they're like, okay, Wolfsburg and you know Brush Montreglabat. We bought seven of your players each last window, so we'll let you we'll let you go and we'll buy seven from Dortmund and Schalke instead, uh, and you guys can play in the Champions League this season. Yeah, they, they and they always loan a player out to someone. It's always like we'll we'll let Nicolas Sula join a random club for a year. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> gotta keep um gotta keep your uh <laughs> your indentured clubs happy um but uh no it's it's fun because um well it's fun it's bittersweet in the sense that um this could very well be the final time we see champions league group stages for a long time um as next year they're set to begin the the swiss style um league and so yeah mm. it's it's fun to see that we've got a nice group of death. We've got some great opening week fixtures um, like Man U versus Bayern Munich. Some real real games for the ages, I think. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. And it's a point I hadn't really considered uh, this week, but certainly one that is, is true. It's like this is the... In much the same way that people, the generation above us, are sort of like, oh, you know, uh, yeah, football didn't start in 1992, or, oh, what are you talking about, the Champions League? You call it the European Cup and, and things like that. You know, this is, in a sense, the last edition of the Champions League that you or I have grown up with, and, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have grown up with as well. Um, so whoever wins it, it'll be, you know, all that more special, Um Mm. You know, it doesn't count as more of a trophy, but it's sort of an extra. You've won the final edition of the Champions League as it is currently. Um, so, yeah, an especially interesting edition of the, of the tournament for that reason, yeah. It's also the first time that we get to say really properly in the future, back in my day, we used to have group stages. I mean, maybe absolutely. Maybe you could make that claim for like back in my day, there only used to be two European competitions um, or maybe even one European competition. Um, don't know when the Europa League started, but um, yeah, we're getting older. Yeah, we we certainly are. Well, with that, let's move into a bit of Utah's trivia because I have one that segues on perfectly from your statement of getting older. Uh, it's a man who has stopped in time. Um, what <laughs> if I told you, Rupert, that there is a Premier League player who has celebrated their thirty-first birthday officially twice? Go on. 
Well, well, I mean, first I'll I'll toss it to you. I'll let you have uh, one guess, and then I'll reveal who it is. But yeah, they've had two thirty-first oh. birthdays, oh, two official thirty-first uh, birthdays. Sun Hyun Min. It is indeed uh, Hyun Min Son or Sun Hyun Min, uh, because Korea have uh, changed the way they count their ages. There used to be the case that if you were born, you were one from the age you were born, and I think they changed it last year or this year. Um, so Hyun Min Son was thirty-one, and then he turned thirty-one again this year. Um, Someone asked me this earlier. I only actually got this stat earlier today. Someone asked me it as I was uh, leaving the office. Um, and they said, who do you think it is? And I was like, oh, it must be a South Korean player because of that whole thing. I guess, you know, I, I guess it's going to be someone like Park Ji-sung or someone like that. Because I didn't... What surprised me was that Hyun Son is 31. When has that happened? Uh, well, he didn't used to be 31. <laughs> Um, yeah, but w- w- when was he even thirsty? He, I mean, I think he joined because he was he played in the Bundesliga for a while, and then he joined yeah. Tottenham. I want to say maybe when he was like twenty four, twenty five. But I think I, I guess it must be. I think it's pro- I think it's quite easy to think of him as like twenty two though, because he's, he's got quite a baby face, um, very very clean shaven, um, and yeah, I don't know. I guess. <laughs> I, I, I also just feel like it's one of the... Because, yeah, gun to my head, I would have said 28, 29. Because I feel like it's also one of those things that people talk about when they go, oh, um, you know, oh, is he, you know he's, he's getting close to 30 now. Or like, oh, he'll be 30 next year. And you never really hear that about Hume and Son. It's also quite impressive that at 31... Like, 31 is, is, as we've discussed many times, not what it used to be. But 31 is you're in sort of the you're in the badlands in football years a lot of the <laughs> you, well you certainly used to be it's really impressive that at 31 he's not really dropped off at all and he's not really had many injuries either I, I was really shocked to learn that he was 31 certainly that he'd been 31 for the second time um because I didn't that that had never sort of come across that he was near 30 or past 30 or certainly 31 um yeah I, I don't know about you but that really threw me for a loop I know what you mean. I think um, he's obviously been around for quite a long time. And I, I definitely disagree with the fact that at 31, your career is starting to go down. I feel like... No, no, no. Like I'm not saying that. I'm saying like traditionally. To... Yeah, but I, I feel like 27 like, like, to 31 when, when, Again, when we were growing up and it's turning into quite nostalgic. a nostalgic... Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, this, I mean, what what also always surprises me is that I always think that Song Hyun Min, for someone who's actually been in the Premier League... For, for as many years as he has, I always think he should be slightly higher in the the goal scorers table. Uh, I mean, he could break top twenty this season. Pretty, He's got fewer pretty goals than Paul Scholes. Yeah, Paul Scholes played for a long, long time though. As you just said there, I mean, firstly, Paul Scholes was playing. I mean, he wasn't as attacking as Hummels on, but Paul Scholes was playing for a United side that dominated the league most years he was in it, whereas Hummels on has played for a, a Spurs side that. Most years has just been him, Kane, and vibes. That's true. I mean, he also has more goals than Didier, Didier Drogba. So, um, you know, I guess it's all about... And Cristiano Ronaldo. So it's all about um, how you phrase it, I guess, isn't it? Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a good... Uh, it's a fun piece of trivia. Um, I like the fact, um, you know, the whole 1st of January thing is, is quite a funny reversal um, that's happened recently. Definitely threw me for a loop when you first said it, and then luckily you managed to row back. Um I've got quite a fun little piece of useless trivia for you this week that I saw, which is that um, there have been over 30,000 goals scored in the Premier League. Um, And of the nations of all of the players that have ever played in the Premier League, of every single nation that has only ever scored one goal, 30% of them were for Norwich. Wow. Wow. Multicultural Norwich, who knew? Multicultural Norwich. I mean, <laughs> again, <laughs> I'm somewhat cherry picking in that they've had two of the seven players <laughs> um, that have uh, come from clubs that have only ever scored, um, countries only ever scored one goal. Um, but uh, yeah, it uh, and those players are. Um, well, I, well I, I can tell you one. One is Cuco Martina for Curacao, certainly. Uh, no. Who else has scored from Curacao in the Premier League? For Norwich. 
No, 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 not not of Norwich. I'm I'm saying of the seven. Norwich have two oh, of the seven. Oh, right, right, right. One is definitely Kuka Martina of Curazak. He scored an unbelievable goal against Arsenal when Southampton beat them 4-0, I want to say, eight years ago. Um, Do you know what's really funny is that I was actually talking about that goal at the pub like on Monday. We were trying to remember who the right back was that banged that goal in. You're the one that like curves. You can you get that perfect mm. angle. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you're right. Great minds. Great minds. Uh, Junior Furpo is another one. Um, but the the two from uh, for Norwich were uh, Mila Rashika of Kosovo and Onel Hernandez uh, for Cuba. Ooh, very nice. Very nice indeed. Uh, do you have, I mean, you mentioned Junior Furpo. Do you have the other three there? We've got four of the seven. Uh, I do. It's, oh, you're testing me now. Ali Samata, obviously. Uh, for Tanzania, oh, for Tanzania, um, my homeland. For Aston Villa, and I didn't know that one off the top of my head. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, mum. I didn't know that one off the top of my head. Sorry, mum. Did you not? Uh, um, weirdly, I I forgot he scored. I, I I knew he'd he had like a bit he of scored a, in his debut. So if, I know he had an up and down time, but I forgot he scored. There you yeah, go. Um, mod because yeah, because he had he had a great debut and scored, and I remember talking to you about it a bit like oh. Nice little Tanzanian lad, and then yeah, that was that was it. Mm. Played thirteen more times and then left. Um, Modu Barrow is another one for Gambia. I think he was playing for Swansea in twenty sixteen. Um, and then the final one. Uh, let's see if I give you the club, or potentially if I give you the country. Do you want to try and guess it? If you give me the country, I'm like, if you give me the club, I have no clue. He's from Estonia. Oh, oh, I'm not sure. And he's I'm a centre well, Oh, Ragnar Klammer. Yeah, nice. There we go. There we go. That's brilliant. That's uh, what a what an unbelievably good pub quiz question that is. Uh, that I hope some listeners eventually get at a pub quiz near them and are able to smash it. Uh, thanks to that. Yeah, that list. I think uh, well and truly useless. And unless well, <laughs> unless yeah. put to use. No, absolutely brilliant. That, that, that honestly, that used trivia right at my Straza. Uh, I really like that one. Um, one of my favourites of be... yours for a while, actually. Um, which uh, brilliant. Yeah. Um, there you go. Let's let's talk about a few of the Premier League fixtures. Um, I want to start with uh, the Tottenham comeback versus Sheffield United because this mm. Sunday we have got uh, the North London derby always a huge match for those two teams often a huge match for the table certainly uh, in terms of who will finish top four uh, in recent years uh, or even top six in, in even more recent years um, but this is a year where both of these two teams have had Convincing starts in some ways, unconvincing starts in other ways, and this fixture perhaps represents the first real test for both of these sides. Now, we haven't had it yet. That's happening this Sunday. But I want to talk first about Tottenham in the context of their season and their comeback against Sheffield United. Um, a really late comeback, the latest comeback ever in Premier League history, due in part to these uh, additionally late added time uh, rules. Tottenham here, what did you think about them? And uh, are you in the camp that Ange is the greatest thing since uh, sliced Wonder Bread? Or that they have had some decent results, but let's not get carried away just yet? Tottenham, I think... Um, they had a, It was an interesting game because I think that quite a few of their players, I thought, were solid and fine. I thought Bissouma had a pretty good game. I thought most of their back line had a pretty good game um but then they continued to not score um to the point where they allowed their opposition who you know you really should be beating if you want to be you know competing for top four places um scored their first goal of the game um in the 70 something minute and at that point i thought this is a real indication of of maybe a, a team that's not quite ready um and then they came back and won it. I think you've got to see it as as at least partly lucky when you score two goals in in a couple of minutes and right at the end of the game. Like that is it's it's luck that's won them at least two of those three points. Um I don't think they necessarily deserved to win the game because if you're leaving it that late, I don't think I think you've forfeited your your chance really or or any sort of um deserving of it. But 
you know, I think the flip side is that it's very impressive that under this new manager, they already are motivated enough to be able to rally in this way. I think it's a really good sign of the dressing room. Um, I think it's a good sign of the club, the momentum that they have. I like it. Um, so I think for all of the bad that they showed at times um, and for not going ahead, uh, I think that they deserve quite a lot of praise. Yeah, and there's a few things I quite liked about this. I mean, firstly, not a huge fan of him necessarily as a, as a player, although as a person, there's an argument that he's a, a much nicer person Um uh, for many reasons I'm not going to get into now, but certainly the whole story around Richarlison um, and his sort of mental health struggles uh, and him sort of coming out about that and Andrew obviously supporting him, for him then to sort of score and assist the the equaliser and the winner respectively and then sort of be celebrated by the rest of his team in doing that was, you know, certainly, uh, you know, a, a good thing to see in the, in the overall scheme of things if you're sort of, um, you know, you never want to see someone in a, in a dark place and certainly... You know, sometimes it takes until, you know, a Dele Alley type position when someone's coming out and talking about the ill effects that everyone has to go, oh, oh, poor him, poor him. So, you know, good to see and show some empathy for, for a player like that in a position like that before we get to that point. Um, I think also a lot of people were sort of giving Tottenham pelters for the way and the manner in which they celebrated a 2-1 win over Sheffield United. And people were sort of going, oh, you know, very plastic of them or look at them celebrating when... I actually, and keen to hear your thoughts, I actually think this is a really good sign. I think, and people were sort of having a go, I mean, they've had a go about a lot of teams for it. They had a go, I think one of the really notable ones was, um, do you remember that game when Liverpool drew with West Brom 2-2 years ago? And they were all celebrating that massively, and people were going, oh, they've celebrated like they won the league. Or certainly Arsenal last season, people were going, oh, they're celebrating. I think a lot of the time, that's a really good sign. It shows that you know, people are believing in themselves and it's a really good environment and there's no cynicism there. It's a real sort of just like happy, good feeling sort of type of thing. Um, and maybe that was bad back in the Roy Keane days, who probably has an opinion, something on the lines of, if you're smiling when you play football, you're not winning. But I think by and large today, um, it's almost always the sign of good teams. And, you know, to use those examples there, that Liverpool team that drew 2-2 with West Brom, either the next season or the two seasons after that they ended up winning the league and they were running City as close as anyone has for the last five six years Arsenal obviously had a great season last year and didn't end up going on to win it but certainly had the best year they've had in like 10-15 years uh, and, and maybe the same is to come for Spurs I think they could be a really really good team this season and I you know this next game will be quite informative uh, against Arsenal if they can get a result there I mean, it's time to start having a serious conversation and how <laughs> we put the clock on uh, Arsenal last season and went, when do they have to be top of the league for us to stop saying they're going to bottle it? I don't think Spurs are going to win the league, but hey, they could they could do pretty well this year and they could have an Arsenal-style season and, and, and really, you know, dispel a lot of the fears that the fans had about losing Harry Kane, which seems bizarre to be talking about in, in September. You thought they'd at least have a bit of a bit of a hangover from losing him. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you you definitely would. Um, I think that people will always find something to complain about. And I think that, you know, obviously there are some games that will naturally look bigger than others before they start. You know, we've, we've already talked about a couple um, like mm-hmm. in the Champions League. And, you know, there, there'll obviously be a certain amount of expectation that comes with Man U taking on Bayern Munich because of the history of both clubs uh, compared to, um, you know, Copenhagen taking on, I can't remember who they're playing in, in their first um, group stage game. Um, but uh, Galatasaray. Galatasaray, yeah. Uh, I think that this is, I mean, you know, it's a monumental win for Tottenham. They scored in the 95th minute and the 98th minute. It's a record-breaking win. And I've got it down as the the ninety eighth and the ninety uh, eighth and the hundred and first actually. Oh really? Oh well, could I take your word for it? Um, but you know, I, I think that you're well within your rights to to celebrate pretty hard um, when you've just done something like that. And I think that yeah, let let them enjoy it. Yeah, no, 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 I absolutely agree. Uh, I think that's. Uh... Spurs want to watch out for because it's games like that. I mean, Tottenham have all, even when they've not been so good, Tottenham really love a late comeback. Even in sort of their darkest hours, they've sort of, you know, gone down 
two nil to Norwich and then scored three goals in the ninety sort of plus minutes. Um, it seems to be something they've always had. Um, it's only in the modern era. Uh, let's talk next about. Uh, well, I was going to call it an upset, but can you even call it an upset these days? I was talking to a friend of mine well, before we before who's we a United leave, fan. Um, before we leave the Spurs chat, if I may, um, I just want to put mm. to you, you know, how you how you see this reflecting kind of Spurs' chances, Spurs' early season, Angie Postacoglu's Spurs, you know, Angie Ball, or whatever they call it, Postacoglu Ball. Um, you know, they've they've won here, um, but they've had a, a pretty easy early fixtures. Um, you know, they've played Brentford and Man U, but then apart from that, it's been Bournemouth and Burnley um, and now Sheffield. Their style of football hasn't fully been tested yet we're talking about potentially later on or, or next week um the the derby going on on the weekend but is this a sign to be worried about that they couldn't put goals past Sheffield do you think it was an impressive Sheffield what, what are your thoughts on the fact that they were unable to score for over 90 minutes I thought Sheffield United looked quite organised for a lot of this game. Um, and I think in a lot of the games they've had so far this season, actually, they've started quite strongly and then eventually the game was caught up with them. Certainly the Manchester City game is, is another uh, example that springs to mind. Um, you know, I, I think you can come back to the old adage when you sort of talk about teams performing or sort of struggling to perform against, um, you know, quote-unquote weaker sides of the old adage of like there are no easy games in the Premier League. I also think... If you're having a slow start under a new manager, but you're also managing to pick up points, that's not a bad thing. You know, you would expect a slow start, certainly under someone like, it's not like they've brought in, as with their last few managers, people who have, uh, you know, an absolute wealth of experience at the top, top, top level, managing players of this size, clubs of this size, and leagues of this size. Ange has come from, you know, the Scottish League, and before then, uh, the Australian League, so if this is what the teething problems period looks like, and they've still picked up 13 out of 15 points, I'd say they're in pretty good stead, to be honest. As mentioned, I think it'll be very illuminating what happens on the weekend, even though I would say that if Spurs lose away at Arsenal, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're in trouble. They, you know, it depends on the nature of the loss. If they lose, you know, 5-0, then yeah, that's a cause for concern. But even if they lose like 2-0, it's away at the Emirates. That's one of the hardest fits in the calendar for most teams. That's not a cause for concern. So, if I was a Spurs fan, I'd be feeling really optimistic, and I think most fans, most most fans, most Spurs fans are feeling optimistic about things at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, I think that feels reasonable, fair and balanced, um, and I broadly agree. I think um, it's an exciting time to be a Spurs fan. Um, let's move on though to a team that that maybe didn't have as good a time on the weekend. Uh, Manchester United made it three losses in their first five games when they got taken down 3-1 by Brighton at home. They did, and I had a sort of a bit of a preamble there because I was going to call it an upset, um, but I don't know if you can because I had a friend who is a Manchester United supporter who was actually at the game uh, on Saturday who texted me before the game. He sent me a picture of him outside the ground and he went, Brighton 3-1 win, get the bet on. <laughs> And it finished. I texted her. I went, "Have you got any lottery numbers, mate?" <laughs> um, I think, I think that's sort of how predictable uh, Manchester United's predicament has become. I think we all looked at this game and we went, "You know what, Old Trafford, Brighton, Brighton, probably the favourites here." Which is bizarre to even now after years of Old Trafford not really being a fortress, is still bizarre to say. Um, but Brighton, miles the better team here. Um, just all over Manchester United early doors and just exploiting, figuring out what Manchester United's problem was and exploiting it over and over again. We saw time and time again Manchester United players not tracking the runners from midfield and people not being able to to spread wide enough to, to stop wingers from getting crosses in. And it was the same goal, you know, essentially three times that, that um, you know, different variations of it that, that Brighton scored. Um, and there's sort of starting to be question marks now around Eric Ten Hag because he is not really adjusting his tactic all that much um, in response to sort of stimuli. There's obviously the uh, reactionary United fan base are already getting to work on blaming the players. Uh, it's Marcus Rashford's fault. It's Bruno Fernandez's fault. It's Mason Mount's fault somehow, even though he's injured. Um, 
yeah, it, it, it just doesn't seem like it's in a great position. And inevitably, Manchester United will somehow conspire to find a way to finish fourth, and so it'll all tide over for another season. But yeah, lots of problems there. And even someone like, you know, Lissandra Martinez, who was one of the best centre-backs in the league last year, has not looked good this season. Um, Andre Onana, who... You know, he's got a good pass on him and he's certainly very animated, but he's let in a shitload of goals in not that many games. Um, it's quite concerning stuff at United. And as I said, you know, they'll always eventually bounce back and somehow at the end of the season you'll go, hey, how have they managed to pick up 75 points? But yeah, it's another season where, and not, not that we're anyone surprised here, but they're not going to be challenging for the league, you'd think. Yeah, you're right. There are definitely some, some concerning signs. Um, I think what I was surprised by was just that you know, they had a lot of, as you say there, a lot of space running through the middle, a lot of space on the edge of the box. Casemiro had a pretty bad game, um, in my opinion. And and that's not something that I would expect from a player of his stature. Um, on the flip side, though, delighted to see Tarek Lamptey back to his best. Yeah, absolutely. In by virtue of Purpose of Stupinan playing uh, all the way over in South uh, South America in, uh, I believe, some altitude as well. I don't think it's as bad as um, the Argentinian players who've had to play in La Paz um, in Bolivia. And we saw how bad McAllister played for the first half as a result of that. But mm. certainly lots of travel, flying 6,000 miles and, and, and stuff like that. So or 3,000 miles, I don't know, distance. Um, <laughs> I think it's 3,000. Yeah, six thousand there and back is probably where I've seen six thousand. Uh, so, so yeah, no, but but all that to say, Tariq Lamptey back to the lineup. Yeah, looking good, looking good. Um, and Brighton in general looking good, going again from strength to strength. It's it's really interesting how they've, you know, continued upon this ability to not just rely too much on one player. You know, Evan Ferguson's come in this season, but didn't start this week because of a little bit of an injury, and Danny Welbeck chipping in against uh, his old club at their ground. Uh, Pascal Gross, who has sort of stepped back a little bit over the course of last season uh, from goal-scoring responsibilities, uh, coming in as well. And Joao Pedro, who is uh, another sort of new addition, getting those goals as well. I think Simon Adingra was another one who, who came in for this game. So it, it's really interesting to see that Brighton, I mean, Eric Ten Hag was complaining about how much money they'd spent. I think their whole 11 here was something like 16.2 million in total. Um, but all players who... I mean, this has been an obvious thing to say, given they've just scored three away at Old Trafford, mm. right up to the level. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think a fantastic trait of this Brighton side is that they seem to be able to score goals from literally anywhere. Um, all of their um, players from from 2 to 11 um, seem very willing um, to pop up on the score sheet. Uh, a man who wasn't was Marcus Rashford. Scored, had a lot of shots, didn't score a lot of goals. No, I think this is the thing with Rashford. He's very streaky, as many wingers are. Uh, but I think, you know, playing it, there's been so much discourse this week about Harry Maguire uh, and discourse last week about Paul Pogba. I think the problem is when you play for a club of United size, and I don't think this is just a United thing, although I think there are only a few clubs like this. Real Madrid are another one that spring to mind, for example, is that when you play three good games in a row, you are suddenly the best player to have ever walked the earth. Messi, Maradona, Ronaldo, Pele be damned. It's all about, insert Real Madrid or Manchester United player X. Conversely, as soon as you have two poor games, get out of my club. You are the spawn of Satan. You are ruining everything, blah, blah, blah. And, and this is the cycle that someone like Mark Stratford, by virtue of the fact that he is very streaky, seems to go through on a seasonal basis. He'll have like five or six or seven games where he's brilliant and every United fan will be going like, he's better than Salah, his record is... And then he'll have a sort of few games like this and all of a sudden all of that is forgotten and he needs to be sold immediately for grist. Um, so, yeah, not a great game for Marcus Rashford, but also I, I think he's the victim of being a United player. He's, he's a decent player, a solid player, you know, but there's a reason he's never scored 20 league goals in a season and I don't know why we start every year, or certainly United fans start every year expecting he's going to score 30, and then are disappointed when he doesn't. Definitely does flatter to deceive. And and he does have flashes of looking like a really, really phenomenal player. Um, he's just streaky. Like, it, you know, 
in the same way that other than when he, I mean, he did score 20 league goals one time, but like Raheem Sterling, I would say similar player, like I'll have like really good streak. No one has ever gone, oh, Raheem Sterling, oh, I can't believe you've not put this team on your back. He has his good streaks and his purple patches. And when he does, that's a real boost to the team. But United are like, <laughs> they sort of convince themselves that Rashford is world-class and then they're pissed when he's not. It's like, my brother in Christ, you are the ones who created this narrative. <laughs> well, there are, of course, players that do elevate themselves from being a streaky player to one that does take teams on their backs um, and, and you know, have an incredibly consistent time. Um, the one that springs to mind is someone like Eden Hazard. Um, but, yeah, I think um, I'd be interested to talk at some point. I, I don't think we really have the time now, but um, about whether or not the club culture encourages streaky form um you know do players drop off quicker because they know that the fans will turn on them as soon as they do they don't have the you know the the confident stable base um or or is it just you know providence that that Rashford as a um a flash in the pan player happens to play for Manchester United you are 100% right that it's a conversation for another time because we could spend 10 hours talking about the specific uh, combination of circumstances that makes Manchester United a, 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 an environment that somehow makes players worse. Um, but not one for today. Um, I want to talk briefly about, incre- actually incredibly very, very briefly, because there are other games to get onto. I just had one remark, really. Um, West Ham won City 3. I'm actually fucking sick to the back teeth of this <laughs> new City thing where they pretend to be bad <laughs> so that they struggle with games only so they can inevitably win. I'm actually kind of sick of it. Just go back to beating teams 5-0. Like Every other week, they'll be like, oh no, we're 1-0 down, tee-hee. And then it'll be like, full-time, 5-1, 4-1, 3-1. I... This is boring. It's it's not interesting, Pep. Stop pretending to, to find these games hard and letting people score so you can struggle to a win. You gotta keep it spicy, man. You gotta you gotta keep it you gotta keep the intrigue. It's not spicy. Gotta, it's not spicy. You gotta at, least, keep, um, at least when they were smashing teams 5-0, when it was like, oh, they're playing Watford, that'll be a 7-0 this week. At least then you could be like, okay, let's marvel at the, you know, at whatever means they've they've taken to get here, let's marvel at the absolute excess of uh of, of you know footballing practice guys you just won the treble don't pretend that you, you have to struggle to beat West Ham we all know you don't West Ham know you don't so don't pretend just so you can put a bit of suspense into it and then win at the last minute same against Sheffield United I'm fucking sick of it I conversely think it's hilarious mostly because of your reaction <laughs> I love the idea of I feel like Pep horns your dream sometimes I really do <laughs> um, I, yeah. I love the I love the idea of like a city go like oh uh, ah, no, no, it's fun. It's fun one. It's oh, fun we one. might lose. We might lose. Just kidding. Um, yeah, you know, hey, hey, it happens. Um, you know, you've got to do what you can to keep the romance alive. Hmm, I'm not so sure. Um, let's talk. Now. Well, actually, the only other thing to mention with this is another game where Haaland has scored, but he seems to be missing a lot of big chances this season. Uh, I think he had more chances uh, in this game than any other player has had bar Nicholas Jackson in the league this season across the first four game weeks he had six I think and the most across game weeks one to four was seven for both him and Jackson which is I don't know an interesting little uh statet um but yeah sure I mean he's, probably not a cause for concern I mean if you watch um I remember thinking this when he first joined Man City his first games in the Premier League when he was scoring goals but he was missing quite a lot of chances. He, he's not, a, you know, he's not a ruthlessly clinical player in front of the box at all times, in front of the goal, sorry, at all times. Um, he doesn't mind missing a good chance or two, I would say, every game. Mm. It's it's true. And I, I guess the flip side of that is, like, to miss those chances, firstly, you have to be get like, the fact that he's getting six chances in a game and that he's in the position to have those six chances, and also the fact that you can afford to miss six chances still win, probably means that none of this really matters. He'll still score 60 goals. Sure. I mean, actually, do you know what's been annoying me? If you're if you're talking about things that are annoying you, Harry Kane for Bayern Munich. I don't know if you've been watching many of the highlights, but every game, I swear, he's missed like three guilt-edged chances, and then he scores a penalty, and like the YouTube highlight reel is like, Kane scores again as Bayern Bayern Kane draw fires Bayern success. It's it's like <laughs> no, it's like he's playing right. he's playing fine. 
he's getting some very good chances and he's putting away some of them. Um, that was a little, it's true. A little thing that pissed me off. It's true. Uh, firing through, because we've got three more games I want to cover, unless you have anything else to add on to the end, but three that I would like to touch base on. Firstly, Everton nil. Arsenal won a sign of change or a cause for concern. Um, I think a lot of people who watched this game live sort of went, hmm, Arsenal, a little bit uninspiring, not so hot against one of the worst teams in the league so far this season, uh, and nearly dropping a point, albeit away, uh, to Everton. Although, perhaps more soberly in the days to come, many have reflected that this is Arsenal's first win at Goodison Park since Wenger. Uh, it was a sort of dogged win where they tried the same things again and again and again until they led to goals, and perhaps is the kind of win that Arsenal were lacking last season, uh, which Will give them the edge this year. Your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think periods of averageness is anything new to Arsenal, uh, and that's not to to say that I don't think that they're a fantastic side, and to say that I don't really like some of the football they play. But um, I mean, you know, take their opening game of the season, Arsenal versus Nottingham Forest. A lot of that game was pretty average, and. They left it pretty open-ended right till the very end. Um, one goal would have lost them two points. Um, you know, they had two early goals and then and then just sat back for an hour. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think this is new Arsenal. I think, if anything, this is pretty standard Arsenal. And, and really, as you said there, what they need to be cutting out if they're going to take the next step to challenging City for the title. Mm, it's a fair point. I think one of the big uh, notable things is since the Manchester United game, and perhaps necessarily because of the injury to Thomas Partey, they seem to have changed back to their old system. And even more notably in this game, Kai Havertz uh, was dropped. Bizarrely for Fabio Vieira, which, um, you know, I think he's been good this season, but don't know if this is the matchup for him. Um, although he did have the, the pre-assist for the, their winning goal, I think. Uh, and then also the oh, swap right. of so, the goalkeepers. So were you, were you talking about David like... Ryan. A, like change into the system being a, a cause for concern or no 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 not at all right, that was right, just right. A, a different point just the result gotcha. uh, and then also uh david Raya in for aaron ramsdale so a, a couple of changes um in the arsenal team uh which i suppose is a good sign because a lot of people were quite concerned but certainly with arsenal's first three games that uh you know Mikel Arteta had found this new system that he had to change everything to fit Kai Havertz in to, to work and it was going to cost them dearly. Um, and maybe they are not sticking to that system. Certainly haven't in the last two games. Certainly has. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, they're obviously getting results. Um, they've ground out some pretty pretty close matches. 1-0 um, against Palace as well. Um, and yeah, I think they're still working things out. They've obviously experimented with a couple of different things. Got new players coming in. Uh, players like Timber who who do add new dimensions and and new plans, um, you know, to switch to if if things aren't working. And I think it's part of the growing pains of, of any club that's looking to step up is that you do look to try and um, you know have new systems that you can fall onto if if your plan A isn't working. And if you can do that while still winning games, which Arsenal seem to be doing, then you know all power to you. It's just funny because, and again, taking it back to the game that'll be happening on Sunday, the North London Derby, it's funny how the media, and certainly this is the way I've been thinking about it and speaking about it myself, but Arsenal and Spurs have both played five games, you know, they've both played Manchester United and they've both played, other than that, teams that you would say are on the, you know, quote-unquote weaker side of the table, and they've both arrived at 13 points, and yet the predominant narrative around Tottenham seems to be well, you know, Big Ange is here, he's revolutionised the game, and Tottenham are going to be a real threat this season, whereas for Arsenal, it's, ooh, have they lost a bit of the spark that they had last season? And I'm not saying that as a, I would espouse that view myself and have this episode, but it's interesting how we've, a lot of people uh, certainly have arrived at that conclusion. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Let's move on next to Bournemouth nil, Chelsea nil. The quest for 40 points continues uh, for both of these teams. <laughs> it, it does, doesn't it? And um, Chelsea are doing the very generous job, for your sake, I can only imagine, of um, making it very easy for you to extrapolate points to the end of the season. 
uh, five games played, Absolutely. five points won, uh, which, if my maths holds up, would put them on 38 points by the end of the year. Not quite enough uh, to automatically avoid relegation, so they've got their work cut out for them. Um, and Bournemouth too, I think. They've also they've also done the even more uh, handy thing of having a goal difference of exactly zero, which over the course of a 38-game season means they'll have scored the exact same amount of goals as they conceded. Well, well, that is surely true, isn't it, Cameron? That that is that is surely true. Um, they've had a slightly better season so far than Bournemouth, who sit one point, sorry, and two points and one place below, and four goals fewer um, goal difference. But this game, that was a pretty dead game, wasn't it? Yeah, not a great game. I think some of the big changes here included uh, Ben Chilwell losing his spot at left wing, which was bizarre, uh, to Michaela Mudrick, Chelsea's actual left winger, who then probably played a bit worse than Ben Chilwell had at left wing. Um, Still not quite working out for him. Um, I thought Chelsea were not very inventive. I thought they were pretty flat. I think, again, this whole three defensive midfielder system continues to see them drop points. And I think with Chelsea, unlike uh, some of the other teams we've talked about that are in a bit of trouble, you know, we've seen that Todd Bowley is just as ruthless as his predecessors when it comes to swinging the axe on uh, managers who aren't getting results. And Mauricio Pochettino, I mean, he's had five games so far, and he'll, he'll have at least five more, but if he continues to have results this way, it's not going to be great. Do you think that he is the right man for the job? I don't know that anyone is the right man. You know, it's not an enviable job at the moment. There's so much going wrong for for Chelsea. There's so much to deal with. There's so much on the pitch, off the pitch stuff. It's a bloated squad. You've got to make sure that you're you're keeping players happy. And, you know, there's already rumours of players like Enzo Fernandez, for example, being unhappy, but then they're sort of locked into these eight-year contracts. So I think it's a difficult job for anyone. I, I do think there's a bit of a question mark around Pochettino in that... If we're being real, this is a guy who had a couple of fantastic seasons with Tottenham six, seven years ago, and then didn't really do so well at PSG, and then has sort of floated around in the English media as a prospective manager for various people based on the strength, not of his time at PSG, but of that time with Tottenham, and has got a job at Chelsea as a result of that. There's a part of me that's inclined to say, hey, look, there's a reason that none of the other top teams went for him. And Todd Bowley, who learns all of the stuff he learns about football off Wikipedia, did. Um, and, and and that's what's going to define his time at Chelsea. That's interesting. I mean, I don't think that I necessarily agree that the other clubs, top clubs, you know, were kind of treating him like um, like they didn't want to ever sign him I think for example if the timeline had worked out he could well have gone to Manchester United I think if the timeline had worked out he could well have gone to a big Italian club Uh, I feel like there's a good manager in there there really was and and the other reason um, that he has remained a, a figure in English football is that I think a lot of people look at that Spurs side as being the best they'd been for for a long, long time, and and they say they think of Pochettino as being robbed of the opportunity to keep building that side that he took to a Champions League final. Um, I think that, as you say, there it's not an enviable job, and it's weird, isn't it? Because on the one hand, as a manager, all you need to do is is arrange your tactics against your opposition and pick a strong starting 11. And, and those are things that, um, you know, pundits like us, um, people sat at home, look at and think it's really easy. But then the, the flip side of that is we hear all the time, like, it's a massive rebuild job. And Chelsea are in this weird limbo phase of looking like all you need to do is pick a strong starting lineup but behaving like they need a massive rebuild. And no one, I don't think anyone knows really what's going on inside the club to create that, that dynamic, that culture, but it's just, it's just in a weird place. I don't think it's anywhere near or close to getting back into the top four. 
No, I, I don't think so. But, I, you know, I've talked about my reservations about Pochettino's decisions already. And I do think, you know, you say there were chances. This is a guy who was out of management for almost exactly a calendar year. And if he's as top of, you know, as elite a manager, this is not someone who took a sabbatical or who chose not to. I think he was just passed on by a lot of people who they just thought, well, his track record, what's he got? He was at Spurs where he didn't win anything and he had a lot of improvement for them. Um, but you could argue that that was as much due to him as it was to a few generational players coming through at the same time in Harry Kane and at the time Dele Alli and, um, you know, them really lifting the level of Spurs. Obviously, Mauricio Pochettino had a, had a huge part to play. That's why I say it, as much a part. And then he went to PSG, obviously won Ligue 1, but also lost Ligue 1, which is almost uh, a more sort of uh, damning indictment because he kind of expected to win Ligue 1 with his current PSG. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's a big question mark for me. I, I guess we'll see, but I am I was kind of sceptical even when Chelsea brought him in. And I don't think he's done anything yet. The thing that's most egregious for me is obviously the three defensive midfielders system against all the teams that Chelsea have been playing. And you, you know, he was given such a good run of fixtures to start the year. Well, not given, but it's you know, luck of the draw. Chelsea had such a good run of fixtures to start the the season, and they have squandered most of that good start. Um, and then what? Then you know, the, the tough fixtures are going to come. <laughs> then they're really not going to like the season. It's true, and and they have a few tough fixtures coming up. Um, you know, I think um, they're playing Brighton soon. They're playing Spurs soon. Um, they're playing Aston Villa next week. Um, also this weekend, um, they've got Arsenal in October, Brentford, Spurs. They're in that point where you look down fixture lists and you think none of these games are easy for them. No, because they've they've had what are supposed to have been their easy games already. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean to have played... Forest and Luton and um, Bournemouth and to only come away with four points is is surely um, an abject failure for a club like Chelsea. And, you know, let's not forget, I mean, they they have certainly shown themselves to be a bit better now, but at the time they played West Ham, everyone was going, that should easily be a Chelsea win, and they they dropped all three points there as well. We now, with the addition of added context, know that West Ham are actually pretty decent this season. Um but yeah, just looking at it on paper, you would go, at the start of the season, you go, okay, maybe they lose to Liverpool, but then West Ham, Luton, uh, Nottingham Forest and, and Bournemouth, they should be getting 10 to 12 points out of there. And they've managed to get, as you mentioned there, four. Um, finishing off just mm. quickly, uh, I want I want to talk about uh, Villa 3, Palace 1, um, just because I, of course, had quite a bold prediction for Aston Villa at the start of the season, uh, saying that they'd finished fourth and Ollie Watkins would score 20 league goals. Um, Villa, after a uh, difficult start, have uh, had some good results and uh, certainly had a good result on this. And there's goals coming from all sorts of areas, except it seems Ollie Watkins, who has yet to score in the Premier League this season. <laughs> so my bad take amnesty might already be due for renewal. I've got to wait till January, though. Run me exactly what your take was. Oh, I, I said at the start that, that Ollie Watkins was going to score 20 league goals and Villa were going to finish fourth. Yeah, it, it's a surprise for sure. I think. Um... I wouldn't say Watkins has had like a really long period of of looking very impressive as a goal scorer in the Premier League for Aston Villa. Is that a, is that another hot take? Um, I don't think he's had, for example, like a, a run of like five five or six games where he's always looked fantastic and sharp and goal scoring. I think it tends to be kind of two or three games here and there. Um, well, and... I think he had that one towards the back end of last season, which made me believe in him this year. But he's not repaid my faith. Well, I mean, I think the other part is the pressure is off him to be scoring goals because they are scoring goals from other places. Um, you know, to get three mm. three mm. goals in, in like 15 minutes at the at the very end of a game and to have none of them come from your striker is a real luxury. Um, and so, you know, I think it doesn't necessarily need to be a sign of bad Watkins, but could just be a sign of good Villa. It could well be. Well, that probably, on the note of potentially a good Villa and potentially a bad Watkins, um, it's probably a good place to end it for this week, Rupert. I think so too. Well, um, I hope everyone enjoys the return to European football, having had a break of international football. And we'll catch you next week. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. 
The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshul.